When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today, I've got Dave Vreeland with me. I've known Dave for a number of years, both kind of personally, socially, from the investment space. So I'm excited to have him on the show, give a little bit of background. And history, his story is a very compelling one. I hope we'll get into that. And he's got a relatively new venture as well, which I'm excited to learn more about. I think it will be educational for all of us. There's a lot happening in the healthcare space, obviously. So Dave, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here with Brian. So let's do background because I think your story uh, is different than most in the world that you now occupy. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of where you came from. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in South Florida in a little town called Haverhill in Palm Beach County in, uh, in uh, South Florida and went to Notre Dame undergrad, was a biology major at Notre Dame. I was uh, not the greatest student in the world, but I was able to sort of escape the, the great state of Florida because I was a pretty good swimmer and uh, swam at Notre Dame. Thought I wanted to be a doctor and actually uh, started medical school at the University of Miami, but uh, decided for a number of reasons, uh, not least of which I wasn't going to be able to afford it, uh, that I, I take a year and figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Ended up kind of doing odd jobs, uh, bartended and uh, worked in a in a blood bank and did like viral testing and blood type testing, that kind of stuff for a blood bank. And then ended up getting a master's degree in health administration at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, met my wife there. We were in the same program there. Uh, worked at Barnes Hospital for a few years in St. Louis. Ended up moving to Chicago after graduate school. I worked at Northwestern Memorial for a few years in administration. 
and ultimately found I was enjoying the project work we were doing back in those days in the early 90s more than I was enjoying the operational responsibilities of running departments in the hospital. So I went to work for Ernst & Young in the early 90s in what was then a fairly uh, burgeoning practice, the healthcare IT practice. Stuck around there, really loved consulting work, had the opportunity to do really interesting, big, complex IT-related projects, uh, both on the clinical side and on the revenue cycle side. And around that time, I started working on a business plan for my own firm. Felt like, you know, the, in those days, healthcare was probably 15% of GDP. Today, it's like more like 20 we were spending two, two and a half trillion dollars a year on healthcare, and it was one of the most unautomated, disautomated industries that I was familiar with in those in those days. Wrote a business plan for what would become Cumberland Consulting Group, moved down here to Nashville, where we've been for now 20 years. Started that business in the early 2000s, and uh, we just got very fortunate with uh, timing and relationships. I ended up, you know, you, you, you start a company and you really hope that the economy goes well. And of course, uh, a few years after we started Cumberland, the, cr- the crash of 08 occurred, which can scare the heck out of you if you've uh, left a perfectly good job at, you know, at a, at a nice big firm like Ernst & Young. But what came about as a result of that was a piece of legislation called the High Tech Act. Uh, it was a jobs bill, it was a component of the recovery and reinvestment legislation of 09. And it was effectively a $36 billion incentive program for hospitals and physician practices to implement electronic health records, which is what Cumberland did. And so our business just exploded. Uh, we did really well for you know, three years in a row. And we sold half the company to a private equity firm in uh, the end of 2011. And so my, my co-founders and I did very well on that transaction. It was a, you know, a life-changing one for, you know, for at least for me as a kid kind of growing up lower middle class in Florida and really just enjoyed the heck out of that period. We, we bought a bunch of companies, grew the business, and uh, I retired um, at the end of 2016. I was looking at turning 50, had been on the road for you know, 25 years, 45 weeks of the year, and decided to do some different things in my 50s, run my, my son to school. He was starting high school at the time. I figured I had two years to you know, pick him up and drop him off. So we, we started Jumpstart Capital, put a, a, a good bit of my own capital in that, raised a $21 million early stage digital health fund. I had a bunch of ideas about where healthcare was going kind of after it had reached a tipping point of automation as a result of the High Tech Act. And uh, that fund's done great. We, we closed it to new investments last summer. We're sitting today with two exits, probably have three more exits this year, you know, uh, top quartile venture capital fund, but really not, uh, not enough capital, $21 million, just not enough capital to do kind of what I, I envision we could do. And so about this time last year, we started my current business, Caduceus Capital Partners, my partner, Scott Colasar, out of Cleveland, he and I have been friends for 30 years. He was one of my first bosses at Ernst & Young. And so we're raising $100 million focused on, uh, again, early stage digital health. It's all we do. We do it a little unusually. It's a sector and a you know stage that a lot of venture firms avoid because it's hard to do early stage companies. But that's what we do now. And it's going gangbusters. We're, uh, we're having great good fortune in raising money and you know, really look at uh, at the you know the, the tragedy of COVID nineteen as really kind of a catalyst for digital health adoption. Uh, so we're really excited about what's going to happen with this fund. Probably be my last job. We'll probably uh, do multiple funds under the Caduceus banner. I mean, it's quite a story, and I want to kind of rewind the tape and work back with some follow up questions. Why is it that so many people that go on to do really interesting, cool things start out at these 
old line public accounting firms in your opinion? I don't know. I, you know, I remember in my, in my days at Notre Dame, I was an unusual Notre Dame kid. My, my family, no one in my family had gone there. A lot of the people I went to school with were multiple generational, you know, legacies. And I remember, you know, lots of friends who were in business school and talking to them and meeting with some of the people who and were, in many cases were in their families from big, you know, tax and accounting firms. And I think one of the things that if you look at least in the 80s and 90s, the recruiting strategy for the what was then probably the big, maybe big eight or big six, it's down to like big four now. But in those days, it was a very specific recruiting strategy to target uh, smart, smart kids from mostly blue collar families, maybe the first time, uh, first generation educated in college, uh, at college levels. And uh, the view was that you get folks with those backgrounds, they're, 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 they work hard, they hustle, they um, are, you know, are not, uh, are not ones to kind of rest on their laurels. And so it's a, it was a fairly targeted strategy. A lot of the people at Ernst & Young in the early 90s in the healthcare IT practice were, um, you know, much, much more um, like my background than Ivy League, uh, you know, folks and, and uh, you know, folks with uh, multiple generations of college graduates and graduate school graduates. It was much more, you know, kind of children of blue collar families who had uh, maybe not had an opportunity to go to college in the past. So um, I think that's what happens. And then, you know, you end up with a couple of different kind of people, I think, in the big, in the big firms, people who are very, very comfortable with a uh, conservative view of business. You, you don't want to take a big chance. You're very happy with a nice salary and a, a great uh, pension when you're finished. And then there are the, um, you know, the folks who are a little bit more rebellious about things and look at the world a little differently and say, why do we do it this way? And this doesn't make any sense. My goodness, this is a huge opportunity opportunity and, um, you know, and go and do some things more entrepreneurial. Um, and, and that was more, that was more my stripe. I, I had always been um, fairly simple in terms of how I looked at things. It was often I would look at the world from a macroeconomic and macrodemographic standpoint. Um, I've always followed what we spend, you know, what the gross domestic product of our country is relative to other countries. I've been fascinated with, uh, you know, generational macrodemographics and, you know, the healthcare industry is about 20% of a, what is now $23 trillion U.S. economy. And if you just track these things, along the way. It's very easy to see where there are gaps and opportunities. And, uh, you know, it just made a lot of sense to me that sooner or later, the healthcare industry in this country was going to begin to automate just like every other sector in the economy had. Uh, and boy, there'd be a lot of money and a lot of opportunity if, uh, if that actually happened. Now, who knew, who knew it was going to take a major uh, depression level uh, recessionary events to, uh, to make that happen. But, you know, that's kind of how it goes. You, you, you know, you, you, get, you get those breaks when, you know, the way you can get them. Yeah, you position yourself for those type of opportunities. And it does seem like the fact pattern I see often from these big, be it an investment bank, public accounting, corporate law, you've got a group that's the three to five year people or the 30 to 50 year people. And there's not a lot in between, right? So you're definitely in, in the former. Um, and how scary was it to move to Nashville and start this company? You know, it wasn't that scary. I was really fortunate because, um, you know, I, I had a really support, have a very supportive wife. Um, Mary Glenn has always worked in uh, her field. She's a very talented uh, executive. She works mostly with CROs, contract research organizations. Kind of her career track has been to, to do post-FDA approval uh, drug studies uh, and, and has always had a, a solid salary and um, you know, good health insurance. And so from the standpoint of our family, it was um, a situation where she knew I was going to do something like this at some point, And it just felt like it was the right time. When we started Cumberland, I was 35. I'm 53 now. Uh, and it was kind of the last shot I had. And I think she both, you know, she both uh, supported me, but also knew that I was not going to be happy if I hadn't 
um, at least at some point in my life, uh, taken a crack at, at doing something entrepreneurial and um, you know, seeing if I could prove what I believe to be the case in the marketplace, and that we had a different approach, a, a different view of, um, of of how things go. You know, it, it, your your question reminds me of a of a really funny, very interesting story. There was a um, there was a kid uh, who who predated me, uh, who worked for Anderson Consulting many years ago. A kid by the name of Dale Stockcamp, and back in the days that uh, he was like a senior consultant at a, at Anderson, he had uh, a whole bunch of views about how to do revenue cycle. Uh, performance improvement engagements when you know Anderson Consulting was doing them a particular way, and he said, "Gosh, if we just built a little bit of software, we could really ease the front end of the uh, registration process and make it a lot easier for folks to get cleaner claims out." And the partners said that that was silly; that didn't make any sense. Why would we do that? And so he went off and started Stockcamp and Associates and basically reinvented the way you do consulting in the revenue cycle. And so I had seen that model work. I had seen the guys who started First Consulting Group, who started Superior Consultant. Um, I'd sort of watch those stories play out and it's invariably um, somebody with a different approach and the general kind of old line partnership, as you say, the 30 year old, 35 year old career folk, uh, folks who want to stay there forever, generally poo pooed it. And so you, you have to find you know, a way to release that pressure if you, uh, if you really believe in what your idea is. And you know, there's no better country in the world for that to happen than this one. I mean, there's, no, there's no, effectively no corruption to stop somebody from you know, quitting their job and starting a business and you know, going out there and kind of competing. And so uh, it was one of those things that I was going to do sooner or later. And I've, I've basically never done it any other way since. I mean, I've, I've started now three companies and I can't imagine working for somebody. As, as a lot of people who are entrepreneurs joke, I'm, I'm pretty much unemployable now because I, I sort of know how I want to do things and, um, and, and, you know, I'm not great at taking orders. So. So along those lines, without disparaging anyone, what was the experience like going through a private equity, private equity backed transaction as a founder entrepreneur? It, it was full of all kinds of interesting emotions. I, I, we, we did our deal with a company called Tailwind Capital, a middle market private equity firm out of Manhattan. Uh, some of the smartest people uh, I've ever met. I, I have nothing but good things to say about these folks. Uh, they actually, ironically, they just sold the business, exited the business like two months ago. It's something maybe to come back to. It's a very interesting kind of pin to put into the discussion. Uh, and, and to where they sold it is a very interesting view of what's happened in the industry in the healthcare business today. But it was, uh, it was extraordinary. I mean, I, I had never imagined in my life that I'd see um, a wire come through as, as big as the, the wire that came through. And, you know, it was, it was also terribly educational. We were not particularly ready to, uh, to be a private equity held business. I mean, they effectively almost immediately require you to report and, uh, and provide data like a public company. And we were just not built that way. We didn't have a CFO when we, when we did our, our transaction. So we had a lot of things to move quickly on. The healthcare consulting industry is still very much a cottage relationship-oriented industry. Private equity firms invest in businesses because they think that they can, you know, scale those businesses, and they don't like to think about things as sort of a, you know, personal relationship driver. It's hard to scale personal relationship-driven businesses. Uh, but I learned a tremendous amount from that experience. You know, we we had our lumps. They they fired a couple of our partners along the way, and you know, we had some things that didn't go perfectly. The timing wasn't always perfect, but. You know, from my attitude about this kind of stuff, Brian, it's to me, it's always just kind of part of the ride. I, I learned a bunch of stuff about what we didn't do right and what it, what I didn't know, which really drove me to you know buy some books about doing private equity and venture capital transactions and learning about cap tables and preference stacks and um, you know the various terms of a term sheet and 
it's because of that that I'm able to do what I do now. And um, I, I think of all these things as uh, as opportunities to learn. And even if the experiences are hurtful and hard at the time, they're they're all things that make you better down the line. And I think that that's part of the attitude of an entrepreneur. You you try to see the glasses half full. Yeah, absolutely. As somebody who's been in, grinding on on my business for eleven years, uh, I completely agree. And so that's a great segue. What was that compulsion that led you to go from operator to investor once you exited the Cumberland? Yeah. Well, I, I think it was it was a couple of things. You know, you get fairly hopefully confident in what you're really good at. The two, three things you're really good at, I think, by the time you get to be about 30 or 35 years old. And I was uh, fairly confident in my ability to see what was going to happen in the healthcare industry out a decade or so by the time we had gone through the uh, exercise to start Cumberland. I mean, don't get me wrong. There, there were lots of people at Ernst & Young when we announced we were leaving and starting Cumberland who said that you're out of your mind. How are you ever going to sell a piece of business? And how are you going to grow a company? And you know, how are you going to take care of your family? And all these, all these sort of naysaying types of questions. And my view was it's just going to happen that the healthcare industry in the United States is going to automate. It's a gigantic part of this economy. Every other sector of the economy has, and I'm not sure what's going to cause it, but something's going to. And of course, we talked about why and, and, and the fact that it was a recessionary event that caused it, but it still happened. Once you reach a tipping point of automation in any industry, I mean, we saw this, you're a little younger than I am, but I mean, we saw this play out in retail and banking and financial services and every other industry. Um, and I remember in college, I, you know, no one had a PC in college, uh, except for maybe a couple of kids. We had, we had computer labs where we'd go and write our papers. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, there was a PC on everybody's desk in the early 90s. And so my view was that once you reach a tipping point of automation, the really interesting, sexy stuff that you can do with that data, once it's in databases, as opposed to on paper, comes about a decade hence. And so, you know, we were looking at 2016, 2017, and I had spent the better part of, you know, 25 years implementing really complex and truly enterprise solutions in health systems and health plans, the payer and provider sectors. And I had a fairly good idea of where the holes and the gaps and the inefficiencies and subsectors that were immature software marketplaces. And so my view was, you know, I can probably predict what's going to happen in the next four or five years and then place some bets on companies that I believe are, you know, good ideas, uh, you know, great ideas started by good people and catch them at low valuations, which is the, you know, the fairly unusual thing that we do. I mean, most venture firms don't, don't invest in businesses with, you know, between zero and a million dollars in annual revenue. We, we invest very early. We do it because we know the ideas are terrific. And we also understand how hard it is. And so we've sort of built our business structurally to support scaling those companies to that, you know, first and second hop. The jump from zero or one million in revenue a year to five is a huge jump. And then going from there to 10 is even a, you know, in some cases a tougher jump, but it's where all the value is. And it's where we're able to kind of make these, you know, fairly healthy returns. And I just saw, I saw, you know, some opportunities uh, in the marketplace. And, and then it was just a matter of uh, ensuring that, you know, my network was able to kind of produce those, those deals in the deal flow subjects, uh, sector and got a bunch of, got a bunch of good colleagues along the way to help me uh, learn how to do some of the uh, other stuff. The other thing to remember is I spent most of my career doing deals with uh, healthcare providers and health plans for big, complex information systems projects, half a billion dollar projects where, you know, our piece of it was 30 or $40 million. So I'd had a lot of experience negotiating 
um, a deal that was a complex deal. Uh, so my feeling was negotiating with an early stage company around how we can invest in your business and help you go and be successful and scale it. But I'd be pretty good at doing that just, just from experience. And in full disclosure, my family is an investor with Jumpstart, has been for a long time. And we've had a lot of success under that investment vehicle, the various different food groups. Talk a little bit about the strategy of reverse engineering by, and that you alluded to this, Picking management teams and and concepts that you knew solved a problem in the marketplace because you already knew the marketplace and you yeah. had talked to the end user and the buyer before you had talked to the management team and, and thought about the idea. Yeah, yeah. There are just thousands of of examples in a four trillion dollar a year industry. I mean, I'll give you I'll give you one real specific one. One of the um, one of the areas we felt strongly was uh, a gap and an opportunity was the software marketplace supporting ambulatory surgery centers. You know, my partner and I, Scott and I, were were we just we lived through the um, high tech act stimulated automation of the industry in the 09, 10, 11 timeframe. What happened as a part of that that experience is that, you know, back in the early days of my career, hospitals typically ran, you know, 50 vendors and sometimes 250 or 300 different applications. Then the federal government comes along in 09 and says, we're going to give you cash if you implement electronic health records. But what they didn't expect would happen was a lot of those hospital systems looked at the software marketplace around them and said, you know, gosh, we've got all these vendors that don't really work very well with one another. We've got to maintain all these interfaces. A lot of times they won't let us use the interfaces. The user interfaces of these various systems all look different depending on what the vendor is. You know, there's this one vendor out there, Epic, that basically makes software for everything in the facility. Why don't we just throw everything out and implement Epic? And so what happened was almost as an unintended consequence of the High Tech Act is you had this accelerated maturation and consolidation in the software marketplace supporting the hospital and physician practice market. Um, familiar with being familiar with the ambulatory surgery center space, there's these are the standalone surgery suites environments that are much more patient friendly, nicer buildings, easier to access. You don't have to snake your way through a big complex hospital facility to go and have a surgical procedure done. And all of the trends in reimbursement are moving people out of the hospital and into the ambulatory surgery center arena for surgery. It's less expensive. And as long as CMS can ensure that it's as safe or safer than a hospital setting, they're all four less expensive. And so today there are about 6,000 ambulatory surgery centers. I believe there'll be 10,000 by the end of the decade. And in looking at the software marketplace that supports it, it's very much a cottage industry. The software marketplace was quite immature in that sector. And so we felt like uh, there would be some fairly strong, uh, uh, strong incentive for that marketplace to consolidate, mature, maybe go through a couple of consolidation cycles. We've had our first exit out of one of those software solutions, and we're in the middle of a, of a dramatic kind of wind up going on in that sector. You wouldn't know that if you just didn't know this world really, 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 really well. The, the big wild implementation activity of 09 and 10 was mostly focused on hospitals and physician practices, not focused on ambulatory surgery centers, different workflow, different software needs. And so it sort of stood out there by itself. And there's hundreds, if not thousands, of those examples in the system today. I mean, keep in mind, the, the U.S. healthcare system has really only reached a tipping point of automation less than a decade ago. Um, and think about how retail has changed in 20 years, much less than 10 years. That's what we're going to see happen here in the next decade. Because what's happened with COVID-19 is, you know, like in so many situations, 
technology exists that's really effective and much more consumer friendly, but that requires almost some kind of a catalyst to push that into the mainstream. We've seen that with remote patient monitoring and with telehealth and some of these other technologies. And there's a long way to go. And we think this next decade is really going to be the big one. So you you made a reference to this about why you had started this new fund kind of a velocity of money or, or the capital intensive nature. Can you dig a little bit deeper there in terms of where you think the opportunity set in healthcare is today and and what the maybe deal size looks like or company size looks like versus the lessons you had learned when you were at Jumpstart? Yeah. So I, I still run Jumpstart Capital Growth Fund One. And, and just for for you know for background, why not a second fund and Jumpstart? Fairly easy uh, answer to that. So you know my partners and, and friends, Dick Gatto and Marcus Whitney, around the same time that we were talking about doing a second Jumpstart Capital Fund, Growth Fund Two, if you will, and talking about raising between 50 and $100 million for it, because we've learned so much with Growth Fund One. And by the way, Growth Fund One's done great. It's just... Uh, you know, it's one of those things where my partner Scott and I really got comfortable with the sector and the phase that we invest in and that we know how to do it. And there's not much competition in that in that particular phase. And so that's what we're going to focus on. Probably always will, by the way. But what happened was, you know, we saw an enormous amount of change in the last year, not just COVID related, but also social justice related. And uh, Marcus Whitney is a, a well-known African-American venture capitalist and entrepreneur here in town. He's my partner in Jumpstart Holdings. He decided he wanted to start a fund focused on Black healthcare entrepreneurs. And we agreed that it was too much to do two new funds in the same year. And so the agreement we made was he would do Jumpstart Nova. And uh, uh, I, by the way, I'm an investor in Jumpstart Nova. And that I would go and do our second fund as a spin-out fund, which is not at all uncommon in successful fund managers to spin out of the uh, existing company and do it under a new brand. So that's kind of what we did. You know, we raised $21 million in our first fund. And, and it, it's hard to raise a debut fund in general. I mean, as you know, Brian, you're basically working off of your thesis, uh, your good looks, and your you know winning personality. And I've only got a good thesis uh, of those three. So you know we did okay, but we only raised twenty one million dollars. And the challenge is, if you're writing an average check of a million and a half, and it's a Series C or Series A, and the business needs a Series B or a Series C, you run out of capital pretty quickly uh, in terms of being able to compete and, and play along on the follow on side. We did 11 deals out of that first fund, and we've now um, spent about you know close to 20 million of the money. So we're sort of out of dry powder. And so what we decided to do with Caduceus is same same early stage, same first check size, but our target is going to be to do 25 deals in about four years, and then hold half of the fund's committed capital. So you know, assuming we get there, 50 million dollars for follow-on, so we have no trouble you know, really jacking returns on the companies that do well. And as you probably know, I mean, the the operational and management consultant approach to our fund and our structure uh, is really built on not just jacking returns on the successful companies, but also ensuring that the ones that are struggling have the help that they need to not, you know, to not fail. Uh, and so the, the traditional VC strategy of supporting your winners and abandoning your losers, we don't do that. I've got 15 venture partners, one five, they're all uh, super experienced, super talented, frankly, old friends of my, my partner Scott's and mine from over the years in healthcare. Uh, they span payer, provider, CIOs, CEOs, I mean, you kind of name it. And they really are the secret sauce for us to do this early stage work and be able to scale it to um, $100 million fund size. Um, and it's worked very well so far. We've done two deals. You know, we're, we're just kind of rocking and rolling. Yeah, I would I would echo that. I think within the high net worth and family office space, it's really challenging to do early stage venture just because the capital requirements of doing the follow-ons 
and could can be diluted if you don't participate. And 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 it, you do really need to have a long term thesis and mindset there. And it, it can be challenging. And it's almost a bit pernicious because the ones that do really well require more and more capital to to fuel that that top line growth. So. Yeah. I think your strategy makes a ton of sense. Could you go into a little bit deeper into exactly what the investment thesis here, the the profile of the companies, the sector specific, what you're most excited about, what you're staying away from, et cetera? Sure. Yeah. There's, you know, I, I mentioned the large venture partner group. We call that group the syndicate. That's one of the two innovations in our in our in our fund, which is called Early Stage Digital Health Fund One. Um, the second big innovation is that we're going to likely end up with between 50 and 75% of the capital coming from health systems, either hospital systems or, or health plans. And it's a really interesting indicator of what's come about as a result of the COVID-19 uh, uh, crisis of the last year, year and a half. So many hospital operators today uh, that fall into that mid-size category, say six or seven hospitals, you know, a thousand or 2000 employed physicians, call it two and a half, three billion dollars in annual revenue. You know, they spent a year getting all kinds of pressure from their boards about why are our hospitals either empty, waiting for COVID patients, or overflowing with COVID patients who are generally not paying patients, while meantime, all of our profitable services have been put on hold. You know, what are we doing in, in people and buildings when there's so much happening in software and innovation? And so what we've tried to do is to offer an answer to that problem and then give the health systems, not only a peer-to-peer -peer network, which we call our Health System Innovation Council within our fund structure that's staffed and supported, but also provide them with a great insight into how you do venture investing, private equity investing, and, and then you know, give them a great investment as well, a great investment return. And so that's gone great. And it's an indicator of what's come about as a result of the COVID-19 crisis in this country. I'll give you a, I'll give you a for instance, one of my favorite quotes is, uh, is a quote by uh, uh, the communist Vladimir Lenin, and he intended it differently than I use it. But the quote is, nothing can happen for decades, then decades can happen in weeks. I believe we're on the cusp of that level of change in the $4 trillion healthcare system in the United States. Imagine, if you will, as just a thought exercise that Amazon Prime begins to offer Amazon Prime health insurance to its now 175 million American members. There are only 330 million Americans in our country. That's the population of the United States. So more than half of our country is an Amazon Prime customer. Amazon has the best data in the world on those 175 million people. They've got the Amazon Prime data. They've got the Whole Foods data. They own pill packs, so they're able to get medicines very effectively to people through their incredible logistics capability. And on top of all of that, they've got effectively uh, free capital that's unlimited to do what they want to do. I believe when they offer this benefit that they'll do it at 30 to 40% of what we're paying through our employers today, and it'll be totally portable, it won't be tied to your employer. And that can cause a dramatic implosion in the health insurance business in the United States and then some associated impacts down the line to the provider world. Those are the kinds of things that I think are going to see, we're going to see in the next four or five years. And those are the kinds of areas where we're beginning to make investments and bets in terms of how the system is going to change. So that's one good example. I think a second good example is I'll go back to my days at Ernst & Young and at Cumberland, where I was running big, complex Epic implementations. The billing and collections process in healthcare is known as the revenue cycle. It's kind of the in-the-know uh, term for billing and collecting uh, for services. 
the revenue cycle is one of the, it is the single most important financial uh, function of, a, of an institution. You know, you deliver care, sure, but do you get paid for it? The revenue cycle is whether you get paid for it or not. And I think that uh, if you look at most large organizations, they spend enormous amounts of people resources on the revenue cycle. Uh, I believe that this is a great example of kind of the combination of fintech and healthcare tech where automation, bots, AI, machine learning, some of these advanced technologies that make it so easy for Amazon to put things in front of you on the app that that they know you're going to want. That same set of functionality is going to enable health systems to take a lot of people out of that process. Uh, And it's going to create enormous cost uh, reductions along the lines uh, as we go forward. I think there's still a whole lot of golf left to play with remote patient monitoring and telehealth. Example I give is that I've been an MDV, my wife and I have both been MDVIP customers now for probably 10 years. I mean, it was a a really important thing to have when I was on the road all the time. You can probably imagine going through the process. Your kids are a little younger than mine. Just scheduling an appointment with a pediatrician or a primary care physician can take weeks in some cases. Well, the reason for that is in a traditional primary care physician's book, There are 2,500 patients that that individual is responsible for. In the MDVIP primary care physician's book, there's only 250 patients. And I only see my MDVIP doctor once a year for my physical. I'm a generally healthy 53-year-old guy. How do I transact stuff when I'm sick? I just text him and he writes a prescription and the prescription is delivered to me through our health insurance company. I think every American should have that level of interaction with his or her physician. And the reason for it is the way that we're reimbursed is, uh, is really kind of requiring of an office visit in order for that physician to get paid. In the MDVIP show, we you know basically pay the guy $10,000 a year and so he gets reimbursed differently. These are the kinds of things that we're just going to see get changed dramatically in the next decade or so, because we can't spend $4 trillion a year plus inflation plus population growth much longer. It's, it's starting to become a problem. We've added $10 trillion to the national debt as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. I mean, just think about that, $10 trillion. It, it doesn't seem to, to matter right now, but I agree with you. I think it's going to be increasingly problematic moving forward. And as a percentage of our GDP, it is unsustainable. I would agree with you. What are some areas within the healthcare space that you're staying away from? What are what are some things that you're fairly bearish on in terms of sector, you, you know, profile of of companies, that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, w- one area that's not it's, it's it's less that I'm bearish than it is that it's just not an area of uh, of knowledge for my partner and me is we don't touch life sciences. Generally speaking, the healthcare industry is divided into payer, provider, and life sciences. Life sciences is comprised of medical devices, pharma, and biotech. And people sometimes ask me, what's the difference between pharma and biotech? And the answer is easy. A a biotech company is a pharma company with no revenue. So they're kind of the same thing. Just a biotech company is a little entrepreneurial in its nature. A good example of that is that the the current mRNA vaccine you get from Pfizer is actually a joint venture between Pfizer, a pharma company, and a company called BeyondTech, which is a biotech company. Uh, who's done some really interesting research on, on mRNA technologies. Uh, so we don't touch anything in that space. I don't, I don't know enough about it to feel confident to place bets on things. And I generally don't care for any kind of a business where your challenge isn't just sales, it's also an FDA approval of some kind. Um, so that's one. I think the second thing is, you know, if you look at, at other industries, and again, this is the frame through which I, I, I generally will approach things. Uh, if you look at that, 
I, you, you, you typically see that um, that the big the big tech titans have been very effective at finding middlemen and wiping them out, and then adding that margin into their margin. Healthcare is full of middlemen, and uh, I think that you know in that middleman world, a lot of those places are going to get wiped out along the way. So you know, I'm I'm not going to be spending a lot of time you know worrying about pharmacy benefit managers. I don't think they're necessary as time goes by. They're classic middleman. I think a lot of the players who uh, sit between the, uh, the provider and the, um, and the patient, uh, a lot of those players are going to get wiped out as well along the way. What we really focus on is trying to find these niche areas where um, a big problem has just not been solved and technology is a great solution for it. And then also situations where the middleman is going to disappear and they're going to need some really great technology enablement to ensure that that happens and that the margin goes to the right place. I'll give you an example of a former. One of the last investments we made in our first fund uh, is a company called Intelligent Observation. Intelligent Observation is a uh, is the title of the company. The name of the company is referential to uh, the standard of care for hand hygiene monitoring in hospitals today. Um, the standard of care is known as visual or manual observation. What that means is that I watch you wash your hands and then I write on a clipboard that I saw you do it. You watch me wash my hands and write on a clipboard that you saw me do it. Fully 97% of America's 5,000 hospitals use that method of, uh, of hand hygiene monitoring. And as you might imagine, Brian, that's not a great method. People don't wash their hands enough in hospitals. Well, of course, then COVID-19 happened. Well, what intelligent observation has done is they've taken the technology known as near-field magnetic induction. Uh, sounds like a big word, but really all it is, is it's the same technology that all of us have in our remote keyless entry key fobs. Uh, requires very little power, so it's low, it's low cost to use. And the basis of the technology enables the um, computer engineer, the programmer, to develop a very specifically sized bubble uh, using the algorithms. And that's the, way, that's the way this thing knows if it's in your car or 50 feet outside of your car and so forth. And so this is a great technology solution that enables through cloud-based software, a facility to install these things. There's a sensor on every employee's employee ID badge and a sensor over every hygiene station. And you can tell whether someone has washed his or her hands walking in or walking out. You can raise that up to a unit level, up to a floor level, up to a facility level. And so this thing's exploding because obviously after COVID-19, the dirty secret of uh, nosocomial or hospital-acquired infections is now out and everyone knows about it. And this is going to be the standard of care, I believe, in that particular business problem within healthcare organizations. There are a thousand of those. And so if you've been around long enough and you've done a lot of system implementations, sometimes it's surprising to you to, you know, to be able to tell your, your family who are not in healthcare that, yeah, that's kind of how it works. I wish it didn't. Uh, but that's the reality of it. And you find that whenever, when you're dealing with a $4 trillion business, it's very hard to imagine a $4 trillion business. It's just gigantic. And you've been on the operator side. Now you're on the investment side. You've seen a lot of pitches, talked to a lot of management teams. How do you evaluate these opportunities? Gut, instinct, do you have a, a rubric? Uh, I'm curious how you screen for the deals that you do. Well, I think the first thing is that when, when you take our relationships and just, you know, Scott's and my time in the market being market facing, we see a lot of deals. I, I think for, for prospective investors, you, you sound like you're making stuff up when you say that you, you have effectively unlimited deal flow, but we really see enormous amounts of deals. They're, all, they're from all across the country. You add the 15 venture partners who are um, broad-based as well. So we see quite a bit. What we typically do is for any given fund, we're now on our second fund, new brand, Caduceus Capital Partners, Really Stage Digital Health Fund One. We've got about a half a dozen areas that are in the thesis for that particular fund that we believe are 
are, are just coming. I referenced a couple of them. I believe revenue cycle automation is coming, you know, kind of whether you want it or not, it's coming and it's going to be a huge benefit. We think there's some tremendous opportunities left still in remote patient monitoring and telehealth. I referenced our last fund's thesis around the software marketplace supporting ambulatory surgery centers. So we look for five or six areas where, yeah, we're going to take a deep dive into that particular one. That's one thing we do. The second thing we do is when something comes along and we know it's a great idea, just because we, you know, kind of, oh yeah, that's something we remember from, you know, this year or that year, or that past implementation, then you start to, to drill down and get kind of more involved in diligence in the process. I don't like to do much on the way, in the way of gut. I think it's too easy to make mistakes in that regard. So you're, you're constantly, I think if you do what I do, you've got to be challenging yourself and consistently educating yourself on whether I'm right or not about this is an opportunity, this is a hole, this is a gap. And that's part of the reason I spend so much time talking to, you know, folks like you and folks in the healthcare industry I know who, you know, have a particular expertise area. You know, the example I give you is, you know, the show uh, Pawn Stars where uh, where Rick, somebody comes in with some item and Rick goes, I know a little bit about this, but I got an expert who knows a whole lot about comic books. If you mind, you know, if you don't mind, I'll call him over and have him come over. We've got a great set of resources to do just that when an idea comes across the desk. And then once we think we feel like it's a great idea and that the people we're dealing with are good people, and I say that really, really specifically, I'm going to explain to my mom, we invest in great ideas started by good people at low valuations. Once that's the case, and we believe that that's that, that, that to be true, and then we start the diligence process. And it's, um, you know, it's I think you probably find it to be a fairly traditional diligence process with a bit of an exception. And the example I give is that one of my idols in the music business is a, a guy named Niall Rogers. He's a really cool guy from Brooklyn. He was one of the founding members of the band Chic in the 70s. Fantastic guitar player. He was Sheik's lead guitar player. A lot of the early rap and R&B songs that I remember from growing up in the late 70s and early 80s were actually built off of his guitar riffs. But he's really made his name as a producer, a record producer. He's produced some of my favorite records. He produced uh, several Duran Duran records. He produced David Bowie's Let's Dance record. If you look at his producing credentials, they kind of span genres, and he's probably produced 200 records in his career. And what he says is, the way I produce records isn't for everybody. I join your band for six months and we write a bunch of songs together and we record them. And then I go join somebody else's band. And he said, you know, listen, some bands don't want a new band member. Uh, and if that's the case, I'm probably not the right producer for you. In that spirit, our approach is to get into you know, a room with our entrepreneurs that you know, we're in diligence with, and we write a business plan together for the next three years, in some cases, five years. And if they're not interested in that level of integration, interaction with us, then we're probably not the right guys to do the deal with, with them. But one of the things I can do is I can say, listen, if you're willing to do that, we can take your great idea and really turn it into a scalable business and everyone's going to make a lot of money and you're going to make an impact on the universe. But understand completely, if you don't want us in your, you know, in your business that way, we're we're probably not the right guys for you. And so we take our approach very specifically, very seriously. And, you know, we're not for everybody, but so far it's been pretty good. I mean, we've had, gosh, I've had now, you know, I've done probably 30 venture deals. I've had, you know, a dozen exits and, you know, our process works. And by the way, in our first fund, you know, you talk about this typical venture approach where you, you know, you, you, you throw money at your winners and you abandon your losers. Not a single one of the 11 companies in our first fund has gone out of business. It's taken a lot of work, but we've tried to scale that approach to the downside and the upside in our new fund and it seems to be working. Well, I'm excited to see what the future has in hold for you in the new gig. And I want to thank you for joining us. What is the best way for people to get in touch with you? Obviously, we're going to put this on the socials and that kind of thing, but if they want to learn more 
about the fund or some of the work that you're doing on the investment side, what's the best way for folks to connect with you? Well, then go to our website, which is um, www.caduceus.vc. By the way, the Caduceus name is referential to the international symbol for medicine. So that's what Caduceus stands for. If you think about ambulances in that cross with the snakes on it, that's the Caduceus symbol. People are welcome to call me directly at 615-335-5272. And uh, my email address is dave at caduceus.vc. We'd love to hear from uh, from any of you. Again, I, I've known uh, you, Brian, to be one of the consummate networkers around town and nationally. And uh, you know, I, I always say to my son, uh, that's the most important skill set around, and you're one of the best at it. And I, I try to think uh, that I'm pretty good at it as well. So I'd uh, love to hear from people. Yeah, Dave's great just overall. He knows everybody. I mean, literally everybody, especially in the healthcare world. So if you're just interested in tangentially learning about what he's doing, it's well worth your time to reach out. And the, the Caduceus thing is interesting. My eight-year-old is listening to the Percy Jackson books and her, you know, Hermes is one of these characters. And it's funny because we were listening on the way to baseball the other day, talking about the Caduceus and then I, you know, connecting with you and there's all these things are happening simultaneously. Hermes, I believe is what the Caduceus was in Greek or Roman. Yeah, yeah that's, exa- that's exactly uh-huh. right. So all these things coming up. One final unfair lightning round question for you. Will, and I grew up Irish Catholic, big Notre Dame, <laughs> big Notre Dame fan. Will Notre Dame ever win a national championship in our lifetimes in football? Absolutely. There's no way we won. <laughs> I, I, listen, I, by the way, I, I, I was there for 1988, you know, in the Hulse years. And um, I, I think Brian Kelly is going to get one sooner or later. And, you know, I, I, I love Notre Dame football. And I don't know if I mentioned it to you or not, but my son is, uh, you know, my, my wife went to Auburn. And I went to Notre Dame. My wife didn't even apply. My, my son didn't even apply to either of those schools. And he's going to USC, which is one of the greatest, you know, rivalries in the, in the history of college football. So many Hollywood movies uh, are, you know, they're obviously made in, in, in Hollywood, in Los Angeles. So many Hollywood movies that are using a football game in the background use the Notre Dame-USC football game as kind of its stock and trade classic, you know, rivalry. So we won't miss those games at least for the next four <laughs> years. And I, I'm 100% certain that we'll see a national championship here, uh, brother. Believe it. I, I get murdered in SEC country when I say that I pull for Notre Dame, but I didn't have cable growing up. So NBC was the network I got and my, my family are Irish Catholic and they were good back in the 90s. And so it was a lot of fun. And interestingly, I had Winston Justice on my show a couple of months ago, and I had to ask him about the Bush push, which, you know, which will forever live in infamy. <laughs> Winston is a good friend and obviously went to USC and uh, I've, I've gotten to know him, uh, you know, since he and his family moved here. And um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I love it. I mean, I just, I can't tell you how excited I am for, uh, you know, for, for him and to go to those games. And I'll tell you a funny story too. I don't know if you know John Myers with Bradley here in town, but one of my dearest friends, been my lawyer for years, his son, also named William, born on the same day as my son, uh, going to Notre Dame for uh, uh, naval ROTC. He wants to be a naval aviator. So I've got kind of a second proxy son going to Notre Dame. So it works out. Tailgating for the next four years. Well, Dave, this is awesome. I'm excited for you. I encourage people listening to this to reach out. We've had a lot of success investing alongside of Dave. And so I definitely want people to reach out. Thanks so much for joining us. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 